And just before launch, we were in a launch review meeting, and then one of the designers asked me, hey, who was the designer on this feature? And, and I said, you know, unfortunately, I, could, I couldn't get anyone's help, so I ended up, you know, doing the design. And now it's funny to remember, but it was not, uh, you know, an answer that, that the designer actually enjoyed. Hey, everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiama Hansen-Jury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. As part of our pursuit of all things PLG, we recently launched a survey about product data and analytics, which will form the State of Product Data Report. If you're interested in seeing which tools, data sources, and metrics other product people are using, please take part in our research and help create a cross-industry report. Enjoy! So um, we're here today with uh, Paul Debahi. Uh, Paul, did I say your last name correctly? Correct. <laughs> okay, fantastic. And Paul, where, where are you joining us from today in the world? I'm, uh, I'm based in London, so uh, so working working in London. My whole team is in Munich, but I'm here in London. Wow. Okay. And at the time of this recording, London was a little bit uh, halfway into its second lockdown. So how are you doing? How are you faring, Paul? Yeah, I think I think the same as as everyone. We're trying to cope with you know with confinement, with you know getting used to working from anywhere. I would say. And trying to yeah. to understand the implications over over the long term, over the you know the people in the team, etc. But look, I think we're coming from us working at a software company, at a tech first company. I think we're pretty lucky. So I'm definitely yeah. not, definitely not going to complain. I think we're able to do most of our job in parts much more productively than before. I think the the creative process, the product discovery process, is definitely more challenging. But we're trying to adapt. Let's say. Okay. Well, I look forward to diving into that more. But before we do that, um, let's introduce you to our viewers. And um, so, I guess to kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your background, um, and how you became the CPO at your current uh, company, Join, which we also. We'd love to know a little bit about Join and who they are and what they add to the world. Sure. So, so let me tell you in summary, you know, quickly about my background uh, and how I, you know, came to, you know, to to start at, at Join. So, so I was, you know, going back, going back to the start, I would say that I was one of those ambitious but naive uh, engineering undergrads who ended up okay. working in investment banking in in London for multiple reasons that would require another podcast, I would say. Uh, but, you know, like, but you know, like when I, when I started working in, in m and in investment banking, I quickly realized that this, this wasn't for me in terms of, you know, the culture, the work environment, you know, the type of work, the responsibility that you were given, because at the end of the day, you're in, in an advisory role, you don't really have skin in the game. And so I quickly mm-hmm. decided to go back to what I really liked and what I knew I liked before taking this investment banking role, which was, you know, the engineering world, the tech world, uh, the ability to build products and really have an impact. And at the end of the day, skin is kind of the game. Uh, so that's when uh, beginning of 2012, I joined 
the German incubator called uh, Rocket Internet right at the start of their international expansion. So I was one of the first employees in Dubai um, to, and I helped them, you know, build their e-commerce presence in, in the Middle East from, from Dubai. So at, you know, at first, the main focus was on on building on building the company. So I was I helped them build you know the the, the customer service team, the offline marketing team, etc. I would you know hire the people, uh, start if you want, you know kickstart you know the team, and then hire someone to take my position. A product there wasn't really a product team at first because you know in a startup. I don't think that you yep. need a product team, you know, right from the start. So we had the engineering team with some engineering leadership. And I would say that the product responsibilities were scattered, you know, among, you know, the, the co-founder, a bit of, you know, myself, the engineering lead, et cetera. But we reached a point where we really, you know, we really felt that we needed some, you know, product direction. We, we felt that we needed some people to look at the data, to care for our users, et cetera. And that's how that's when I stepped in to actually build, you know, the, the product team, you know, from scratch at a venture called Namshi.com, which is one of the biggest, you know, e-commerce companies now in the in the Middle East. Uh, so, so this was my official entry into the product management uh, world, if uh, if you want. And after after this, I decided to to go to the to the states, where I did an MBA in at uh, at Harvard Business School. Now, I I always knew I always liked product management, and I knew that I wanted to stay in product management, but. A lot of people actually use their MBA to change careers. So many of my friends were in, let's say, in a private equity and ended up, you know, going into product management at some of the big tech companies who actually value, uh, you know, the, the MBA degree. Um, yeah, who actually value the MBA degree. And so... After after my MBA, I I worked at Google on the in California, and I was based in Mountain View at, the, at their headquarters. So I led two products there. I led Search for the Play Store and Apps and Game Search on Google.com. And you know, after three years, you know, for personal reasons, I decided to come back to come back to Europe, where you know I think I want to stay over over the long term. And this is where I got you know the opportunity to join basically the CEO of uh, the ex CEO of Join. You Used to work with me at Google, and he, when he knew that I was coming back, he offered me this position, and I was interested. You know, I joined Join before their actually <laughs> their, their their first launch, and I was attracted by you know two opportunities: the fir first, the opportunity to build a pan-European play streaming player, and two, the opportunity to build a real you know strong tech team, and that's uh, that's why I you know that's how and why I ended up at Join as a CPO. Uh, now, for the second part of your question, you asked me to, you know, tell a bit about Join, what the company is about. So, so I don't want to be, I don't want to be, be too long here. But if if we go back to the start, um, I think Join was born from the initial belief that broadcaster content is still uh, interesting and still seeked by audiences. And, uh, and the new generation. And I'm talking about content such as The Voice, The Mass Singer, Germany's Next Top Model, et cetera. We didn't believe that right. this type of you know, content is, is dead. And so, and so the way you know, Hulu was created in the US, Join was created yep. out of a joint venture between two big broadcasters, so ProSieben and, Disco and Discovery. 
Uh, right. and, so, and so in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of the, the service that we offer, we're a freemium service. So we have an AVOD uh, offering, which is a, a free ad supported offering. And you have an SVOD uh, offering, which is a subscription based offering with a bigger, bigger catalog, HD, less to no ads, etc. So it's a bit like Spotify, but for, uh, you know, in entertainment. Uh, in, terms right. of, in terms of content forms, we... You know, we um, we have you know different content forms on the platform from 60 plus live TV channels. We we have yep. you know, the whole catch up experience around them and offer you know on demand videos uh, videos as well. And you know, lastly, just to just to give you an idea of you know our growth so far, I think it's been we've been you know pretty well received by the German market so far since our launch in June 2019. So in a bit less. In, in a bit more, sorry, than a year, we're already at around, uh, you know, 7.5 million multi active users. And so now we have yeah. the responsibility to keep on, you know, bringing value to them. Yeah, that's phenomenal growth. And one of the things I want to I wanna talk through is a little bit of how you think your, your org contributed to that. But before we do that, um, you shared so many interesting things about both your, your background and then um, the path to getting here. Uh, I want to ask a little bit about, so, you know, one of the things you mentioned is that when you did your MBA at Harvard, a lot of times people use that to change careers. Um, you did it because you wanted to X, kind of fill in to me, what was it going to add to your kind of your your journey in product leadership? Because it sounds like at that point, you were pretty clear that you were enjoying the product management uh, function after kind of standing it up um, and having such success, right, with the e-com. So why did you why did you think the MBA was an important next step? I think my I think the MBA at Harvard was my way into uh, the American market, and I think this was. Okay the most important factor factor for me. I always knew that, you know, before coming back to Europe and settling in, and I always wanted to get this, you know, American experience where everything is different and, and where, you know, pe people and companies operate at completely different scale, where the tech world is years and years ahead of Europe, I would say, et cetera. So, so being able, you know, or getting the chance to work in a, in a tech company, and I was lucky to work at Google, I think was, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to go to the US first and, and do an MBA, I would say. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and and so another what I wanted to add, you know, to to, to my question, to, to the to my answer, and another reason for doing an MBA was, you know, to get such an important network, which I think in your profession professional life is very important, and I think, and I always thought that this network would be, you know, would unlock a lot of opportunities, a lot of business opportunities, or even my next job. So so that's why I thought that you know another addition that the MBA can get you is this amazing network. I would say. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and that's one of the things that, you know, I really love about, you know, the Product-Led Alliance is that for those people who have yet to build out that network, you know, it, it really does provide you with an opportunity to meet so many other product professionals around the world. Um, and without that network, as you mentioned, both in the tech and the product space, uh, you just, there's so many doors that you may not have open for you, or you may not even know are there to knock on, right? So I, I think I really, I really identify with that. 
So, okay. Um, there's so many interesting things and I know we're going to cover them, but one of the things that you just mentioned was the phenomenal growth that join has had over the past year. So for you guys to have basically been in, in, you know, been live in market for a year and to be at 7.5 million users is phenomenal. Um, talk to us a little bit about the journey, uh, and the role that product has played in this, right. Um, you know, talk to us about both. And I'm interested both in, you know, how you see your role having been to contribute to this, but also within the organization at join. Of course. So I think one of the, you know, the most important decisions that we took or before launching our first product, um, the company leadership decided that, you know, join is going to be a tech first company with a media focus. And I think this was an, a very important decision with a lot of uh, implications on, you know, the people we hire, how we do product discovery, the way we, you know, we develop our product strategy, etc. So, so just to, to to repeat, because it was such an important decision, I think that impacted a lot of things. So join was not going to be a media company with a with an IT back office, if you want, but a real tech company with a media focus. So in this context, you know, the product team had an even bigger role to bring clarity, alignment, uh, you know, throughout the whole organization. Now, once we once we decided at the company level on the vision of Join, it was up to the product team to drive, you know, the strategy. Uh, the way you know we're gonna you know we're gonna launch our our freemium service, if I would say, uh, etc. Et so going back, you know, to your question about the growth aspect and uh, talking, you know, focusing first on the first launch, uh, I think we need to start with the content. I think at the end of the day, we're we're a content aggregated platform. Our users come to join to watch content they like, and so. I don't want to discount the the you know our the efforts of our content acquisition team and and the great choices they made you know for our initial launch uh, and and so within you know within this mix of content they actually ended up choosing it was up to us product to design or to create memorable experiences around this content. And so within the first launch, I would say, product uh, played a, a very important role working closely with the content acquisition team, closely with, marketing, with the marketing team, uh, working on the go-to-market strategy, uh, et cetera. Now, one important decision was not to launch the whole freemium offering uh, at once. We launched our AVOD offering, then looked at the data, tried to learn uh, you know, from, um, from the user behavior, et cetera. And then we did a lot of changes when we ended up launching our SVOD offering uh, a, few months, uh, a few months later. Now, when the, right. when the foundations of the product was launched, I would say that's when would, the product team or the tech team overall became, role became even more important. Because at that stage, we had users, we had data to look at, uh, data to analyze, uh, uh, etc. So, so that's that's when the product team, you know, was able to do product discovery, um, think about the product strategy, and really think about, you know, what's going to be the next lever of growth. Um, so, just to give you an example of what you know, what the team discovered and what we ended up launching. After our launch, we we thought that you know the entertainment package at Join was pretty well received. 
we thought that we did reach product market fit uh, within you know this entertainment package and and we were wondering whether or not sports would be a good addition uh, or a good USP within the the whole aggregation strategy of join and so the the team so the product team the UXR team etc ended up you know doing their product discovery uh, launching in you know in small iterations or iterating on the whole sports experience which we ended up launching with with, with great success I would I would say um, so so the product team is really focused on you know the what what the user needs what what are the user problems and always thinking about the lever of growth uh, now what so again, once the foundation were built and we were thinking about the lever of growth, I think the product team decided, you know, to to focus on you know three main pillars at Join. So the first pillar is to continue expanding on the Join universe, and so this is related to being present on more platforms. So so you know it's not enough to be present on web and on uh, mobile apps and on some TVs. You really need to be present everywhere. This is related to. Uh, bringing more broadcasters or more content providers on board since we want to be, um, you know, a content aggregator, uh, etc. Right. Then the second pillar is to create an experience that's relevant for you. And this is really focused on personalization, recommendation uh, throughout the entire, entire experience. Today, we have tens of thousands of assets on Join, and it's definitely a challenge, uh, you know, to... Uh, you know, to design a content discovery experience around, you know, those thousands of, of assets. And lastly, it's right. to create a seamless user experience. So whatever your goal as a user is, uh, whether it is to watch something or subscribe, we need to make sure, uh, we, need to, we need to empower you to, to uh, you know, to achieve your goal in the easiest way. Right. Right. Now, talk to me about those three pillars. Um, where did those pillars come from? And at what point in the journey did you guys decide on them? Sure. So so they definitely came after uh, launching our the, what I call the foundations of our product or what you could call the MVP of our product. They came mm -hmm. after uh, after looking at, at the data. So, so, so the way we... Um, so the way we came up with them, so each team or uh, so at Join, we work in uh, what we call EPU teams, Ange product, Ange product UX or what, you know, other companies call squads, et cetera. So every or value streams, et cetera. So, right. every, um, so, so every team was responsible of, you know, looking at, the, at their own problem space, coming up with the learnings. And then we, and the, we those three pillars are a, uni, uh, are a unification, if you want, of all those learnings uh, and, uh, and, and the belief of, of the different teams who are actually close to the users on the way forward and the gross levers, uh, if you see what I mean. I do. I see exactly what you mean. So when you started to build your team, um, you know, and this this question really applies across your experience. But, you know, how did you go about identifying who the right people were, the right kind of makeup? I mean, one of the things that we we speak with a lot of product uh, professionals about and often people say, you know, there's there's different types of product managers, right? There's people who specialize more in the strategy. There's people who specialize more in the marketing or commercial. There's people who are more technical. Um, when you were putting together your, your kind of strategy on the product team, um, specifically at Join, uh, let's start with that. 
how did you think through what were the most important, you know, essentials? Obviously, uh, real good data literacy was going to be important um, and, and led to these three pillars being identified. But what else? Of course. So I think just taking a step back, I think the biggest question is, do you actually need a product team? Is the is the company ready for, for a product team? And are you aligned with the engineering team on why you need a product team, what the role of the product team is going to be, uh, uh, et cetera? Now, once you identify, you know, the, the, those needs, uh, it's... I think it's very it's very important, and and when you think about the type of product manager you want you want to have and the role of the product team within you know the the overall tech and or the overall you know company, it's very important to align with the engineering team, with the designers, and with the company leadership on you know on this role. Otherwise, it's going to be if you want a constant struggle, or it's going to be you know you're going to have to constantly reminding everybody at the company about uh, about this role. So if we're talking about join specifically, uh, we, so both Alex and I, so Alex is the previous CEO of join or came from Google. So I think we're heavily influenced by uh, PMing at Google, which at the end of the day takes both the strategy and the technical aspects and, and merge them into one into one PM role. So we don't really have, if you want a technical PM or a business PM, we have one, one kind of, of, PM, um, of PM role who, who looks both you know, at, the, at the strategy, but also who's comfortable to work with the engineers, to look at data and to, and to actually do whatever is needed to launch improvement and launch value, uh, value to, to users. Um, so then of course, depending on you know, you always end up, you know, getting PMs that are more technical than others. So depending on, you know, this this level of um, this the tech, their technical level, you can you can assign them, you know, to the right team. But but for us at Join, we we took the initial discussion decision that we will only hire uh, PMs who can uh, fulfill both the strategy and the technical uh, aspect of, uh, of of the role. Now. You know, once once you agree, and you know, once this is well under this is well understood, um, I think you need when you, when you hire when you hire PMs, you need to look at uh, you know product design skills, product strategy, their ability to work with engineers, their ability to work with with designers, their communication skills, uh, or you know overall you know their their soft skills. But you also need to see what actually motivates them, right? So are there are they prag so if you have a scale you know on one end of the scale you have pragmatism on the other end you have idealism um, there are no there are no bad answer but are they are they idealist or pragmatist and 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 this you know in the in the in the environment, in the in the context of a startup, this is a very important, you know, decision that they will have to take. Otherwise, they will be, you know, they will be frustrated. So, for example, if you if you work, you know, in on a product that touches abuse and spam, I would say that idealism is much more important than pragmatism because you want to be sure that your launches are ideal, um, and and really, you know, like. Uh, because those launches are very sensitive. But in the context of a startup that's scrappy, that needs to move fast, I would say that pragmatism is more is more important. So I think you need to see what also motivates those PMs and uh, uh, beyond just, you know, the, the product skills I, I mentioned. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so, I mean, when you obviously were joining or when you were building the team at Join, that was a very different experience than building out your team at Google. So, you know, following your analogy there, were you were you looking at hiring more scrappy PMs when you were at Join um, or did the idealism play an important role just because of the importance of, uh, you know, creating that seamless user experience around the content streaming? I. I think uh, if, if you look at our current uh, lifestyle, life cycle or the current stage uh, where we are at Join, I think we're definitely hiring for uh, for PMs who are uh, scrappier than if you want than than idealist, uh, who who are very you know who are very data driven, and who actually like to work in a I wouldn't say chaotic chaotic but you know in a scrappy envi environment. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that you focused a lot on and I really latch into it because of my background in, in consumer insights data. So you keep mentioning, you know, going through the data, referencing the data, what is Join's approach to, you know, staying connected to the user, right? Um, I'm, I can make some assumptions about the type of data streams that you guys are analyzing, but for our listeners, talk to us about how you guys look at user data and is it, you know, strictly quantitative, Quantitative? Uh, do you look at qualitative feedback as well? Um, how do you stay close to your users? Sure, I would say that we follow the, the the traditional, if you want, ways of you know looking at data and staying close to users. So we we value both the qualitative aspect and the quantitative aspect. So on the qualitative side, uh, we there is a team called research, research and Insights, a joint which is the equivalent of a UX or UX research team who actually conducts uh, interviews, uh, help the team with design sprints, you know, help the team with, you know, the, the whole brainstorming process, uh, aggregate, you know, uh, qualitative feedback from different sources, you know, from the Play Store, the App Store, or from, you know, any other type of feedback we get from from the customers, such as, for example, from customer service too. And those, you know, qualitative feedback actually serve us as pointers, you know, into what could be wrong. We, we don't treat them, we don't give them statistical significance. There's always the, the quantitative side to, uh, to confirm those qualitative findings, but we do value them a lot and we do use them as, as, as pointers. Now, of course, on the quantitative side, um, now, you know, as a, as a startup, we're still building, you know, our data pipeline, the data that we, that we actually log in our systems, uh, et cetera. But on the quantitative side, we do try, you know, to, um, you know, depending on the problem space, we do tr try to look, you know, deep into the user behavior, uh, the, their drop-offs, um, you know, how they use our system, their retention rate, et cetera. But, but I would say it really depends on, on the goal of, of, of your data deep dive and what, what you're trying to, to discover. Absolutely. And do you, I mean, do you guys use the concepts of personas at join or is it really, you know, kind of back to the squad or the EPUs, you know, kind of uh, problem space that drives the, the user kind of factor in each design sprints or how, how does that concept work at join? Sure. So, to tell you, uh, to tell you honestly, I personally, and not only I joined, but I think throughout my experience and throughout working with different PMs, I think 
I and different people I worked with always struggled with the concept of uh, personas. Now, I know there are different you know, definitions of the persona, but the, uh, the, but the concept of, you know, there's, there's a lady in her, I don't know, in her 60s <laughs> who stays at home. So it's, I would say it might give you, you know, different perspectives, but, but that's it. I actually always struggle to really integrate, you know, this concept into, uh, into, product into product discovery, I would say. Uh, but what my teams really try to do is to identify problem spaces and to really understand who our users are and how they use uh, how they use you know our different platforms, uh, how they you know how they browse on join, uh, etc. And based on those problem spaces, we try to you know to talk to users. Depending you know if we if we take the qualitative aspect, we try to record sessions, talk to users, uh, etc., in order to discover more about who our users are, uh, you know the points of failure of our you know experience, uh, etc. Yeah. Before we start uh, to to move on to the next section, how do your how does your team identify that it's a problem space worth uh, working on? Right. Um, how do you guys determine the prioritization? Um, and what's a sign that this is actually a problem space uh, that you guys need to focus on? Sure. So. So I would say there's there's definitely a lot of problem spaces you can focus on, you know, with different scope. I think the most important is to agree on prioritization guidelines. Um, once you agree on those prioritization guidelines at the at a high level, it gives you know some direction to the teams on you know how to look at or how to prioritize you know the the problem spaces. Now every team is responsible to. Uh, when they, you know, when they, when they identify a problem space and when they communicate, they need to get, they need to seek, you know, wider feedback from from everybody in the team. I really insist that, you know, PMing or even, you know, the work within the squad is not, you know, a individualistic, you know, uh, experience. It should be a collaboration. They should always seek, you know, external or other people's uh, other people's feedback. So I ask them to. To determine the, the user problem, uh, why it's important to solve it, how bad it is, what's going to be the impact on on our metrics, or what value it's going to bring to the user. Once those questions are answered, um, if using you know the high level prioritization, you end up you know prioritizing you know the problem, the problems from you know like let's say simply from the most impactful with the least effort to the least impactful with the most effort. This is a bit of a, a simplification, I would say, but but I think you got the, the gist of it. Absolutely, yeah. And how much do, you know, do the three pillars kind of play into that, right? Is there is there kind of an aligning that you only work on problem spaces that are serving one or more of those three pillars? Sure. So I would say when we came up with those three pillars, I asked, I asked my team to suggest problem spaces, answering uh, why we need to look at them again, how important they are, the impact we can have. I asked them to suggest those those problem spaces before we actually came up with the three pillars. Now it really depends on your philosophy on you know decision making, 
uh, bottom-up versus top-down decision-making, et cetera. But I think where I am now with my team, we're, we're, keeping, we're keeping this you know, open for, for experimentation. So sometimes I try to be more involved. Other times, you know, they try to be more, more involved. But for those three pillars, you know, specifically, it was... I would say a team a team exercise where the team where there was if you want a common understanding of you know the vision where we're going but then those three pillars and the and the priorities under them were the result of the insights and the problem spaces that my teams wanted to work on Fantastic. Okay. So now I think our users have a great, or excuse me, our uh, listeners <laughs> have a great understanding of, you know, um, kind of where you're at right now. One of the things that I'm super interested in understanding, just because of the variety of companies you've worked for, the different geographies that you've spent time in, um, you know, during your career, uh, how is product evolved as a function. Um, and, you know, obviously our listeners tend to be, uh, have a, a heavy con concentration of product leaders. So also how have you seen product leadership change over that time as well? Sure. Um, I think it's a very interesting question. I would say that, you know, as you mentioned the question, you know, throughout my career so far, uh, I was lucky and I had the chance to lead completely different B2C products but always at tech first companies. And I think, you know, I think if, I think my answer would be different if those companies were not tech first companies. But I would say that product management changed substantially depending on the maturity of the company, uh, the maturity of the product, the growth stage, uh, et cetera. And as you mentioned about geographies, and this was something very interesting I discovered when I came back to Europe, I found that product management and the mindset around product management is quite different in the US than, than in Europe. This might be an overgeneralization, but this is what I've observed so far from you know, working at Join, talking, interviewing people in Europe, talking to other startup and companies uh, here in Europe. Um, so I've always had, uh, you know, had to go through a period of adaptation when shifting from one uh, one environment to uh, to to another. And one, you know, one anecdote that I that, that I like to uh, you know to to say without you know going too much into details. You know, when I was at at Namshi, so at Rocket Internet, I think Rocket Internet was amazing at executing. Uh, get you know launching uh, features, iterating. We were operating at a very high speed. And, uh, and I would say that we had to be very, very scrappy. As a product manager, if I had to code, I had to code. If I had to design, I would design. So, so this, you know, it was it was a very, you know, scrappy, you know, like startup, you know, mentality and mindset. And so when I went to Google, uh, when uh, during my so my first project at Google, I struggled to get uh, designers to work to work with me. It was still my first pro uh, project. It didn't really get prioritized, you know, for everybody to work on. So I directly put my you know rocket internet hat and I did the design myself. <laughs> And, uh, and and I, I didn't, it was definitely naive from my side, but I went through the different reviews and apparently it was, I mean, let's say that it, it was simple enough for me to be able to, to do the design myself. And then just before lunch, we were in a lunch review meeting. And then one of the designers asked me, hey, who was the designer on this feature? 
And, and I said, you know, unfortunately, I, could, I couldn't get anyone's help. So I ended up, you know, doing the design. And I cannot, um, it was, you know, now it's funny to remember, but it was not, uh, you know, an answer that, that the designer actually enjoyed. And this was, you know, a big, <laughs> a big learning from me, you know, as, you know, at Google, you need to, you need to respect the different, you know, position, you need to trust, you know, the, the people. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, like you need to go a bit more through the process than, than in a startup, uh, I would say. And, and I say, you know, this anecdote, you know, as a kind of, you know, adaptation of, of a kind of period of adaptation I had to go through when I went, uh, when I went to Google. And it was the same when I, you know, when I came back to join, I also had to, you know, to leave behind my, you know, big tech company, you know, mindset, of course, keep, you know, the, the good things uh, that I, that I learned at Google and then, and then develop, you know, my own way of working at, uh, at join. Uh, so I definitely had to adapt, you know, my product skills, my ways of working, uh, for the, for the context, uh, at join. Um, and, and, you know, and, and this is putting aside the changes in PMing that result from different users, audiences, uh, types of business, whether it's B2C or B2B, uh, et cetera. So the product, Keep on keep on evolving, and I think we all have to to adapt. Absolutely. Well, and one of the things you mentioned early on is the difference between you know European and uh, American product, and you know I I've certainly seen this. Um, it seems, at least in my experience, that a product is less integrated um, in certain markets in Europe. Has that been, you know, and has that been your experience as well? Or, you know, you mentioned earlier on from a technology perspective that, you know, in America, several years ahead from a technology perspective, what have you noticed about European product mindset, product strategy, kind of product uh, discipline as opposed to American? Sure. Um I think it's a, you know, I would love to see some statistics over, you know, that would validate my answer, or I would love to see like a, a more in-depth, you know, analysis, but, but here's, here's what, I, what, I, what I've seen so far. As you said, product, I mean, the understanding of a product team in the US is much, much more understood. Uh, product teams are more integrated in any, you know, tech company. Um, Product processes are much more fluid, I would say, uh, than, uh, than, than in Europe. And I would say that the concept of self-organization and autonomy are much more, are more well understood in the US than, than in Europe. What I've seen in Europe is the, is the prevalence or of, 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 the, of a lot of methodologies or a lot of frameworks such as you know the you know a lot of scrum frameworks and some uh, rigidity that result from from those uh, i've i've also seen a um, you know a, a multiplication of product positions that result from those frameworks such as the product owner the business analyst etc uh, etc et that are um, you know that such framework actually impose. So I don't have the whole the whole background, but but my uh, but my feeling was so it's it's not. I think if you ask a join, there's no uh, 
it's no secret that I'm not a fan of those frameworks. I think it's very hard to create a tech company using using those frameworks. Uh, it's hard, you know, to empower the team to create bottom-up processes uh, using those frameworks. But whenever I talk to my friends or to my network back in the U.S., I feel that until today they are not familiar with with all those PMing frameworks that exist in Europe, and and I feel this is, you know, a big a big difference in the way uh, in the way companies here in Europe understand what a tech-driven business is versus the U.S. Right. Well, and that's a nice jumping-off point to the relationship between tech, um, engineering, and product. Right. So one of the things you said early on is that you know at joined you guys and you know you guys do EPUs, right? Um, or you know squads value streams. Um, and it sounds like you and your CEO were very aligned on a certain style of PMing. Um, but you know, as more organizations look to bring product in, um, and as you mentioned, it's important that that's done at the right stage of evolution of the business, right? Um, but there's been you know some discussion around, well, how does a CPO relate to a CTO, right? Um, what makes for those two roles working really well together? What you know can you know cause friction if if um, there isn't the right kind of foundations in place? Uh, what would you say are kind of the core differences between these two roles? And, you know, do you think that there's certain times where they should be separate? Do you think they should always work very closely together? Um, give us your view on, on how those two work together effectively or not so effectively. Yeah, sure. So, so in my opinion, I think there there could be a case for both sides. You know, there could be a, uh, there could be a case for having a CPO and a CTO, and there could be a case for having what's what's called a CPTO. Uh, and I think it really depends on you know the company, the product, the tech culture, and the you know the the, the individual, you know, the skills and the and the bet, the bandwidth of of the of the person. Uh, theoretically. You know, CPOs are responsible to, transpl- to translate the company or the founder vision into a product vision and strategy. They are the owner of the why. So why we're doing, we're doing something. Why, you know, is a priority, a priority in the roadmap, uh, etc. I think they should have a deep and a very strong industry knowledge, a very strong understanding of what product management is in order to be able to build, you know, product teams and product vision, um, uh, you know, at, at that company. CTO on the other side, they are the owners of the how. So, so how, uh, so how can this strategy or how can those, you know, product priorities uh, be translated into, you know, into features, solution? Uh, how can this be implemented and, and delivered? Uh, and and what I really look, you know, personally into CTOs, and I think this is a separate debate that I've that I've also seen here in Europe. It's I personally look for technical leadership in a in a in a, in, in a CTO. I don't only look for people management skills or their ability to manage engineers. Uh, and so so again, theoretically, CTOs are, are responsible to up level. You know the technical uh, technical skills and to bring you know technical uh, technical leadership um, uh, at the at the company. Now, at the end of the day, what I all all the responsibilities I mentioned could be fulfilled by a CPO and a CTO, or could be fulfilled by a CPTO. Uh, 
Um, I think, you know, if, if you take the example of early stage companies, I don't see the, the, the need for, for a CPO, which actually happened in, uh, at Namshi and Rocket Internet, where, where, I used to, where I used to work. At the beginning, mm-hmm. the CTO and the co-founder or the, you know, the founder can both, you know, do the product, the product responsibilities. Or in some cases, when the company grow, uh, if, you know, an individual has the bandwidth to fulfill all the responsibilities I mentioned, I think it's fine, but I definitely think it's it becomes you know very lonely, and it becomes you know quite uh, quite hard. And to be able to be you know a I would say a good CPTO, you definitely need a proper team with the proper skills to to support you. Um, now on the on the positive side of a CPTO. Uh, everything is more centralized. So there's more centralized accountability, more centralized ownership, more centralized reporting, decision-making, et cetera, which makes a lot of decision on the tech side more fluid, faster, et cetera. Now, ultimately, you know, and I would prefer, you know, the structure of having a CPO and a CTO, but again, it depends. But ultimately, the goal of both those, you know, of both the CPO and the CTO are, are the same. They need to deliver value to customers and to the business. Uh, so they need to, to work very closely as a team, you know, on, ru- on running the whole tech org or the whole EPU org. Uh, I think it's very hard to find individuals who can raise both the technical and the product uh, standards. But then again, it will depend on the, on, the, on the individual. But if you end up choosing for both a CPO and a CTO, I think, their biggest impacts impact sorry comes from the, their ability to work together to work well together what are the friction points that you've seen that would prohibit those two from working well together yeah so there there could definitely be you know a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, friction point uh, since it's very crucial for both of them, you need you know to be aligned and to work uh, to work well together. I think let, let's take some, some some examples. So the first one is on the ways ways of working in within the tech within the tech org. So when to give you an example, when I interview a CTO, we spend a lot of time talking you know philosophically on their ways of working, and this goes back to your question about the difference between PMing or or you know like or being a tech company in the US versus being a tech company in, in Europe. I think that if you're, if at this early stage in the relationship, if you two disagree on you know, the ways of working, the frameworks you wanna use, I think it's gonna be very hard uh, to collaborate. And you'll be spending you know, a lot of time having those processes discussion rather than talking about you know, up-leveling the team, about the user problems, the strategy, uh, et cetera. So I think it's very important to align early on, on philosophically on the ways, uh, on the ways of, of working. And um, you know, another example is if, if, a, if a, as I mentioned, I join, we have um, PMs are responsible of the strategy and, and working with engineers too. We don't really have a PO role, but if, for example, you know the, the CTO expects to have to have this role uh, and expect to use you know a certain framework, when the CPO disagree, I think it's 
you know, it, it, many, many frictions, you know, uh, arise. Now, the second friction can come from the priority and the prioritization, especially when topics such as tech debt, refactoring, etc., come uh, come into play. Uh, I think those are topics that sometimes on the product side, you know, as product manager, we're very focused on, you know, user value all the time at uh, at any cost sometimes, but tech debt refactoring are important uh, this, uh, um, decisions, such as um, the same for tech excellence, I would say, but uh, agreeing on the priorities is very important. And, and if not agreed on, I think it, you know, a lot of friction, you know, comes between the two roles. And ultimately, you know, everything, you know, um, results into the product strategy. Uh, so I've, I've seen many CPOs struggle to get buy-in and alignment on the product strategy, which resulted in the disengagement of the CTO. And, and so as a result, what happens, uh, product becomes a silo, engineers become a silo versus what you actually want is to work as, you know, end product UX as, as one team. And there's yeah. a lot, you know, of friction point. I haven't spoken, you know, about, you know, personality, uh, you know, you know, personality differences, you know, trust between us. But, you know, th those were some some of the examples that came to mind. Absolutely. Well, and I could talk to you for two hours. It'd be interesting to hear that. But in, in the efforts of uh, keeping you um, only using up the time that you've allotted, um, it, it makes me think, you know, as you're talking about kind of the philosophy and the approach, um, obviously, our group is called PLA, right? Product-led alliance. What does being product-led mean to you? Because um, I think that somewhat relates to the discussion between CPO and CTO philosophies, and then of course the organization, right? Being a, a tech first versus, uh, at least in the case of Join, if it had been media focused first with you know kind of tech second. So what do you what do you hear when someone says product led? What does that mean? Yeah, sure. I think um, we, we might we might be talking about the same concept. I, I usually prefer the word you know tech led since it's more inclusive of you know the engineers and the designers. But I think the the concept is the same. You know, overall for me, uh, both terms mean shifting the way we care about our users and shifting the way decisions are are taken. So in a tech led company or in a product led company, for example everyone is, is focused on serving the needs of the customers, of the users, within the constraints of the business and not the, the opposite. So this definitely implies greater responsibility and accountability of the tech org, who's now responsible for looking at data, user problems, performing you know, proper product discovery, et cetera, leading to roadmaps, OKR planning, uh, et cetera. So the contrast, uh, for you know, non-tech-led companies are companies where the tech org uh, just work for the business side, or where the tech org you know works in this linear fashion, uh, you know where they take the requirements that are communicated from the business and just uh, and just implement them. Uh, so today, you know, it's interesting enough. You hear a lot of old businesses wanting to digitally transform to become tech-led or product-led. Uh, businesses, which I think is hard because it's mainly a question of mindset rather than, you know, changing your, your processes. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <clears throat> I think that that's, that's one of the most difficult <clears throat> things, right? Because it's really, it's behavior change, but at the macro level, right? It's actually changing your mindset and the way that you fundamentally think about what your mission is, right? And how you go about that mm-hmm. mission. So I agree with that. I, I'm guessing, but I don't want to assume, um, I'm, I'm guessing that you would describe join as being, you know, product led or tech led, but I'm curious, you know, is that a correct assumption? Uh, yeah, that's that's the right guess and the right assumption. <laughs> Would you? I, I have a I have a I have a question for you. Um, I mean, you you've been you know over the lifetime of your career so far, uh, you've been blessed to work in it sounds like mostly tech led product led companies, which I think certainly makes it easier to build. Which is you know going back to you and coming out of your initial you know, career experience in the M&A space, that was what you were driven by. What would it take to get you to ever consider coming to a company that's, you know, maybe not product led, but is looking to transition towards that? Um, that's a very difficult question to answer. I, <laughs> I think, I, I don't think that, look, there's, there's nothing, I'm not, I'm not against the non-tech-led uh, businesses, uh, if you see what I mean. Uh, I think yeah. it's fine. I mean, not all businesses are, you know, tech companies. You know, some some businesses don't see tech as a as a differentiator. Uh, I think it's up to each business, you know, to consider and see what their USPs are. So I, I don't really want to, you know, want to judge them. I think. I think it's it it takes you know a different kind of personality, a different kind of ma- mindset. I think it's exactly what what you said. It's all about you know the mindset to be able to work in in such company, and it take it takes a completely different kind of mindset to work in a tech led company. And I think it goes it 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 goes deep into the core of what you believe, your values, the the kind of environment you like to work uh, to work in, and especially at a leadership role, um, what kind of you know leader are you, and how do you like to motivate you know those people? Uh, you know what what I've seen most of the time in non tech led company. Uh, most of those are, you know, very top-down, uh, top-down companies. Whereas I've seen in tech-led companies, there's more this shift of, you know, at least trying to trust, you know, your uh, your team to value the insights that they bring to you. So honestly, I think it's going to be. I don't think that my personality, you know, <laughs> matches, you know, the or that I would be happy in those, you know, non-tech uh, tech-first company. More top down. Yeah, I, I I think that's a really interesting question for a lot of our listeners, especially those who are founders or creating companies, um, because it really speaks to your talent, right, and who you're able to attract. So thank you for answering that. Um, uh, do you have two, do you have time for two more questions? I know we're right at the hour. No, yeah, I do, I do have time, of course. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Um, okay. So two questions. One um, is about you. And if you could go back to your, you know, earlier days, you know, you're working, you're right out of college, right. And you're working in the investment banking and M&A space. Um, what advice would you give to yourself uh, about, you know, how you were going to get to here, or, or at least knowing what you know now? Sure. I think, 
You know, <laughs> there might be a lot of tips and advice that I would give uh, that I would give to myself, but maybe just um, if I have to choose one, is definitely to find uh, to find a mentor, to find the right mentor for you at I would say at an early stage. Uh, you could find different mentors uh, depending on you know the you know your the career stage etc. Uh, but but remember that you're not alone, right? It becomes very lonely as a as a PM, or it could be very lonely when you take you know career de career decisions when you when you graduate uh, to take those decisions by by yourself, and and being more informed uh, and taking informed decision, I think will. Uh, uh, will make you more fulfilled, you know, in in, in your in your job. Uh, so I think it's it's very, you know, the the. At first, I, I found the PM role, and even like some of my PMs, you know, still, you know, say it for, uh, tell me, you know, give me back, give me back this this insight, which I agree with that the PM role can be lonely and can be, you know, can be tough, and sometimes, you know, you're stuck into you know, into your problem space that, you know, we've, we've spoken you know, many times about uh, in, this, uh, in this discussion. So I think it's very important to find a mentor who can give you other perspectives, uh, who can give you confidence over a plan that you have, uh, who can understand you. Uh, really, I think, I think this person can be a real asset and a differentiator in your career. So I would, uh, I would definitely try to find uh, myself a mentor, I would say. What for the baby for the baby product managers out there, or even those who are midway through their career but haven't been lucky enough to find a mentor? Any advice on ways to seek that person now? Yeah, look in in bigger companies such as you know the the Google of the world, you know the LinkedIn, etc. They uh, I would definitely you know there are some mentorship programs, but I would definitely recommend you to reach out to other PMs, to more senior PMs within within Google and and be explicit you know don't don't shy away just tell them that you would really appreciate their help if they would accept to be a mentor for the reasons uh, what you would expect from them etc uh, from um, it, it becomes you know a bit uh, a bit trickier when you work in, in you know in um, in very early stage startups and if you don't if you don't really have a, have a, have a network um, there's you know, I would I would recommend you know those you know undergrad or new PMs you know to uh, to check you know uh, resources or or groups such as you know product led or you know mind the product and all those you know like product groups and try to to definitely you know be involved and be present in the product discussion and whenever you know they get inspired you know by you know by someone if they can reach out I think uh, that's. Uh, uh, that uh, I think that this will be, you know, this could be a way. Otherwise, to 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 seek or to check with those, you know, groups if there are any mentorship programs they could be uh, part of. Okay, I think that's really sound advice, and I think the most important thing for people to realize is that, <clears throat> you know, the worst thing that can happen is someone can say, "Sorry, I don't have the ability to do it right now." But um, you know, often I speak with people, and they're they're nervous or they're intimidated to reach out and do exactly what you said, which, you know, I admire your work, I'd love to learn from you, and here's what I'm willing to bring to the mentorship uh, program or process, would you be able to help me with X, Y, and Z? You know, there's there people love to hear that type of an outreach. It shows initiative, it also, it helps the 
potential mentor understand ex- exactly what you're looking for in a mentor mentee relationship. So I think, you know, Paul, your your advice is really sound. And I hope for anyone who's listening that wishes they had a mentor to think about your network and think about people that you would like to learn from and reach out to them. Um, there's, there's nothing bad that could happen from that. Um, okay. Finally, last question. And this is a fun one. So, uh, the people who listen to this podcast, we're passionate about product, right? Um, otherwise we wouldn't be spending time listening to this. So say there was a museum dedicated to the world's most important products. And this could be everything from, you know, pulling on the old analogy of, you know, the horse and buggy versus the car. It could be, you know, Netflix. It could be anything. Um, what three products would you put on display or vote to have put into the museum and why would you choose those? Sure. It's, it's definitely a big responsibility, you know, that you're, that you're giving <laughs> to choose, you know, the most important products as you, as you said. Uh, but, you know, for just for the fun of the, of the question, uh, I want to, I want to think about three tech products that have been doing great, you know, this, this year. And you know that merit, you know, a, a place in uh, in this museum. And by doing great, or by you know the the importance that you mentioned in your question, I mean by really creating user value. And I, I just you know just for the fun of the question, I want to focus on you know this year. So the first one would be um, any NGO fundraising platforms such as GoFundMe, Just Giving. Uh, so for context. Um, as you might know, I'm uh, I'm Lebanese, and uh, so the country uh, unfortunately had to go through a devastating explosion on the 4th of August of this year. Uh, long story short, and uh, to keep you know this conversation joyful, uh, those platforms can really be proud of themselves. I mean, they helped raise money from across the globe in a record time uh, to assist you know all the people who lost their home. And I saw this, you know, first uh, firsthand, and I experienced this firsthand. And you know, like I think we we kind of underestimate, you know, the impact. You know, we we kind of treat those as, hey, okay, I just you know donated, you know, some money. That's it. But you know, having experienced this this year, I really think that those platforms are can be proud of themselves and the impact, you know, they they are doing on on society. So that's. Uh, uh, so those were the first, if you want, go f- the GoFundMe type of product would be the first one I would add to the museum. Um, so second, uh, I would put, you know, within the context of, you know, the global pandemic, confinement, any collaboration product that was useful to you in these times uh, would be, I think, should be considered to be in this museum. And I'm going to go, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to go with Zoom first. Uh, Personally, yeah. I'm pretty impressed with all the progress they've made in developing the product and how they handled, you know, this tremendous growth, you know, this year. And pretty interestingly, Zoom became a verb. So, <laughs> so I think, yep. uh, I think they, you know, I think they did great, you know, this year. They, beyond just professional collaboration, they managed to bring, you know, a lot of people together, a lot of families together, and they can also be proud of uh, themselves. Third, it might not be, you know, very specific to this year. Uh, uh, I would definitely say that, you know, platforms such as, you know, Khan Academy deserve 
you know, their place in the in the museum. Uh, so mm -hmm. Khan Academy, for example, has a great mission of making, you know, world-class education accessible and available to anyone for free. And their ability, you know, over all the years to, uh, to bring this mission to life, you know, has been, you know, pretty, pretty clear and pretty impactful. And I think just for that, they, uh, they do, you know, they do have this place in, uh, in your, in the museum. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, this is like the 2020 edition. And I, I really yeah. agree with the three that you've picked up, um, because you're right that they all add user value, but, uh, this year user needs have been very different, right? Um, the acceleration to digital and the need for, you know, uh, ma maximizing your ability to do the things that we used to do outside of the four walls of our apartment or our home um, have really been facilitated by this. And I, I think it's especially a great call out on the NGOs and, you know, the ability that they have to make real impact. You're right that sometimes people think it's a bit amorphous, but, you know, uh, as you mentioned with the Beirut, you know, um, you know, blast, that was that was so important to get that financing in for people who had literally lost everything. Um, so thank you for shining that light on it. Totally. Yeah. Well, Paul, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I've really enjoyed hearing about your, your background and the role that, you know, different kind of philosophies have played in guiding your career so far. Thank you for spending time with us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Yama. It was great talking to you too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the product-led audience. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.